Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. This is Pod Have Mercy. So, uh, hey, we're joined today by our bestest friend in the world, <laughs> who now lives in Virginia part-time, the doctor, <laughs> the Reverend Doctor. The Reverend Doctor. Cleve Tinsley. How's it going there? How's your job at, at Virginia Union? Man, things are well. Um, yeah, as best as they can be. You know, it's still in the middle of a pandemic, so it's not ideal working conditions, but I'm loving the city of Virginia. It's on a nice little grid. The people are nice, and Virginia Union actually is a great place to be right now. Yeah. So uh, things are going well. Just a little busy right now. <laughs> well, they're lucky to have you. I know that. Are you liking it? I am. I am. I'm, I'm liking it so far. Um, there's, there doesn't come without some challenges on the administrative side. You know, you got to raise money and do things like that. But, uh, but things are good. Overall, things are wonderful. I couldn't have asked for a better position. That's awesome. So a couple of things I thought we'd talk about today. One has to do with, you know, one has to do with something that this what was this little thing that happened that was a what was they called it on Saturday Night Live old man contest uh, you know the country the got to vote on on there were two old men uh, <laughs> in a contest and and we got to vote on which old man we wanted over the other old man and um all that happened I but I I didn't think you know I, I don't know necessarily with all things shaking out and causing anxiety for us in our lives or anyone else's lives but I was confronted I mean I, I was struck by a quote that I saw Andy Stanley who is a pastor in Atlanta North Point wrote this thing leading up to the election about you know your political candidate's going to win or lose based on how people vote Americans vote but he was really more concerned about how the church wins or loses and how in some mm-hmm. way our nation wins or loses based on how Christians love each other mm-hmm. and that's why Jesus said we must not allow anything or anyone to divide us as we consider any candidates, any policies, any direction. The one question that Christians must not neglect in their decision-making decision making, is what does love require of us? And so while we disagree politically, we must love unconditionally, praying for unity, fearing should not, fear should not fuel our actions. Love is the power we need. Love must fuel both conversation and choice. And I guess he ends mm-hmm. it by saying, you know, if the church is going to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, the church and Christians have to ask ourselves, are we willing to humble ourselves and love one mm-hmm. another and seek unity on love? And I, I guess I thought we'd talk a little bit here at the beginning just about what is the church's response theologically? Mm-hmm. What is a Christian's response in the light of an election. I, I, and I'll say something Matt and I talked about at lunch. We watched Saturday Night Live, and I thought Dave Chappelle at the beginning said mm. something that I thought really struck me. He said, you know how um, you felt four years ago? He, he was t- talking, I think, more to a Democratic uh, audience. He said, you know how you felt four years ago? He said, just keep in mind that, how did he say, half the country the feels way. the same way today. And... Mm. And then he said, and you know, the difference said, between us, that, that is, I don't hate those people. I hate that feeling. 
right? Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that, that thing that divides us, that thing that makes power move in ways that um, is nefarious and others and, and blocks mm-hmm. out. And I, I thought, I thought his, yeah, I thought his comment was. Yeah. So I thought it'd be honest. good for all of us just to talk a little bit about it as, as leaders among mm-hmm. Christians, as leaders in, in our different spaces where we find ourselves, but really as faith leaders, intellectual mm-hmm. leaders, you now are, are influencing a whole generation of young people at Virginia Union. How do we help people process and think through about what it means to be followers of Christ in the light of the days that we find ourselves? What is the church's response? What is a Christian's response mm-hmm. to this? No matter which side you're on, I think it's something I've, I, I continue to wrestle with and ask myself about as I try to lead people in a church. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've given some. I've given two or three thoughts to uh, some of the things you said, John. First about um, the Christian message of, of unity, and uh, we have the tendency. I, I've said this to another colleague, another ministerial colleague, uh, who was who sent me a text about it. And I said we have the tendency. We we have to be careful, especially as practitioners, because we have a tendency to want to live in abstractions. Right? We want to say. Uh, love, unity, and these things. And oftentimes we don't connect that to the implications of what that love is, right? Mm-hmm. Cornel West is a, a philosopher famous for saying justice is what love looks like in public. And so there's a way, I, a way we got to press our languages to translate into practice and what that means. And so I think, yes, there needs to be theological analysis, but I also think we need to do more internal uh, not only sociological, but practical analysis about how our ideas connect to our practices. Interestingly, I was doing some reading, preparing for to, uh, something else today, and I read this thought from a guy who talked about how we all, positionality is always determined by discourse, or meaning we are, uh, we've situated in discourse worlds, and as soon as we sort of violate the parameters of this discourse, depending on where you are in the scheme of that discourse is how uh, the, the kind of violence of oppressions tends to hit you. What does that mean for us? So that, what that means is like, um, we have to figure out in whatever sphere we are, be it Christian, be it academic, be it otherwise, uh, how we're positioned within discourse uh, strategies, meaning as religious leaders, me, you, and Matt are able to kind of stand. And part of the huge responsibility we have is to translate discourse into action for people. And we have to recognize that in what ways do we participate in the structure in these discourse strategies that either liberate people or kind of serve for their oppression. So I read an article today, a journal article today about, because the Democrats now are crying out, say, hey, we need to come together in unity. The question I have is, is unity the necessarily the goal here or is it liberty? Is it freedom, right? Because where liberty is, then, you know, one finds true freedom. But to really liberate other fo- folks mean, means doing the difficult work of disentangling and demystifying some of our discourse. So, well, I appreciate Andy Stanley. Um, I wonder sometimes what does that mean though, right? So we have to ask difficult questions and ask like, okay, if we can agree that love is the right way and justice is the right call, to be humble, do justly, um, and to love God, what does that mean? And how is that implicated in the policies that we stand for? You know, why is it that I am, 
if I'm just going to use myself, why is it I consign, I consign myself to being a capitalist over against this or that, that, right? So I think what we need to do as a church and church leaders is to try to cultivate spaces where we're able to have, and I talked about this in the past, why do we not cultivate spaces where we're able to have more sincere conversations and not just gloss over stuff? Uh, we get the kind of framework that we're supposed to kind of stand from. But I think what is incumbent upon us as leaders now is to do a bit more, right? Is to take the kind of theoretical framework that we say we can agree upon, unity, justice, and love, and talk about how that translates in the space and what that means in the social worlds we occupy. And uh, a ministerial alliance reached out to me asking about it. And I said, to, I said, look, on the one hand, what does this context show? It shows us that the country is more divided than ever regionally and nationally. But also, like, unless we're willing to do, take it a step further and do, I don't know whether it's some anonymous polling or whatever, within our own context, us as practicing UMCs, about uh, why it is we agree with one particular political candidate over and against the other. What it is about, about the policy and how do we feel that aligns with our theology of what we believe is right in this world. Unless we're able to have broader and deeper conversations, but also more than that, uh, come to terms with these disagreements, then we're always going to continue to like be at stalemates, right? Because we can all say, it's easy for us to say, hey, we, we may have a disagreement, but the only thing that matters is we come together and we're about creating justice in the world. We're about loving our neighbor. But unless we talk about what that love looks like, I think we're always going to be at these moments where we where it's hard for us to kind of uh, get past talking past one another. Mm -hmm. And um, I think with this political season shows and the way that we see whether it's selfishness or whether we see whether it's a kind of dogmatic view on the one end or both ends uh, not being able to talk uh, with one another is because like we've become so concerned about our positionality and where we are in that practice. And what we see is that discourses are used against us now. Mm. And so whether it's the, the far left or the far right, if you want to talk about it politically, there are ways in which uh, we can use discourse to serve our own ends easily in a way that that seems right with us. But it's hard for us to kind of create a congenial space where we're able to exchange. And that's always been my both my struggle and challenge to uh, myself and others as religious practitioners is how can we create space where we can have we call it critical, but no, let's well, how can we create space where we can have more honest dialogue with each other? To where one doesn't, where one's authority within the discourse structure doesn't feel so threatened that I gotta kill them now. If that makes sense, right? And I think that's the challenge. I think we we are, but again, I'm just open into listening to these conversations because I'm giving them thought, giving it a lot of thought right now. Hmm. No, I can appreciate I can appreciate the abstract versus the specific. And when I hear you talk, I think incarnational. I think how hmm. do you give flesh to the ideas because I do think the safer route for me as a pastor with a diverse congregation is to stay in the realm of transcendence you know and and mm. so when someone says oh you're you're politically centrist and there's no no such thing as centrism and I say no it's political transcendence it's above it all well that's very holy sounding I know that <laughs> That's why I use it. But I mean, you right. know, like you said, it's about love and unity and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation. But I do think you're right. I think at some point, 
you know, we have to make a move as to what does that look like? What does that look like in relationships in real time? What does it look like? Because I think Christians are not absent in the world. We're in the world, but not of the world. But being in the world is significant. Yeah. I mean, it means mm-hmm. something. Um, you know, or at right. least, right, or at least I give more thought to what we're saying. We're, we're in the world, but not of the world. What does that mean? Like, we're fundamentally then should be rooted against the things that serve to uh, um, degrade or dismantle the livelihood of others. It's not just about my well-being, right? So to be not of the world means, at least as I understand it, to, to be not like folks who by nature, right, want to make sure I get ahead at the expense of others. So in my opinion, this is just please speaking, I'm not speaking for anybody else. I fundamentally got a problem with children being detained at a border and separated from their family and nobody giving a damn about that. Like, Mm -hmm. I just fundamentally think that that's a kind of um, ethical and moral imperative that I think we as Christians should say that's fundamentally wrong, right? Or so so I'm saying, what I'm saying is at some point we gotta talk about some specifics and say, um, so what are the problems here, right? Also, I think it's fundamentally wrong for uh, a centrist to say, well, my appeal is to make sure that all the middle class has this. What about the kind of predilection for the poor that we as ministers stand up and talk about all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So at some point, we got to be able to, um, I guess, give more critical eyes on ourselves as those of us who move in a kind of middle brow existence. What does it mean for us to be who we are, to dwell in the places we are, to speak uh, authoritatively with the discourse power that we've been given? And what real difference are we making in the world, mm-hmm. right? Are we trying to just really um, foster a social club that makes sure everything's okay? Or am I really trying to make a real difference in the world? I think that's the challenge we all have as institutional leaders. I have it here as well, because at the bottom, we're, we can't help. We're confined by a capitalistic structure, which means we have to make decisions sometimes that's about bottom line and survival and about succeeding in it. At the same time, we've been given this vision of otherworldliness, right? Being not of this world that says no, it's our job to figure out approaches to make this stuff work for the good of everybody who's within the sphere of the influence of this institution to make that work. Um, how do we do that? These are questions I think that are age old to answer. Yeah. And I think what this election does is just allow all of us to look at ourselves and say, um, what are, what are we doing? What is that really is causing the division here? Mm-hmm. At this point, it's not just about evangelical Christians. It's not about this. I mean, there are deep racial, socioeconomic divides here. And what's being uh, kind of stirred here, right? What is, what is my allegiance to whatever being stirred by? These are just larger questions we have to have. And why is it so acrimonious right now? Is that, is that is that how this thing's supposed to be? And yeah. so these are just deeper questions I'm asking personally uh, about what it means for us. And if, if, and if my my calling doesn't allow me to be effective in some kind of way, at least speaking to folks who have questions uh, about that, then I just need to think about and kind of reorient my practice as well. Um, yeah. So it's, I, all that to say, man, I think these are, these are difficult times, but at the same time, these are times that really call us to do some more self-scrutiny about who we are, where we are, what we're called to do. Yeah, I think we we talked about this too, I think, a little bit at at lunch, about the church's struggle. 
my experience has been in, in serving primary, predominantly white upper to middle class churches, they're diverse on some what I would call political or theological uh, concerns, but not there's not other diversity, but there is there's diversity there within certain realms. But I've had people now who are on the conservative side who say, I'm thinking about leaving this church because you're not you're not adamantly you're not adamantly speaking uh, definitively about these issues that I feel are important for me in my life that I also think are tied to my faith, whether mm-hmm. it's abortion or or liberty or, or just any number of issues that would be on that side. We also have people on the left who are leaving the church and are disenfranchised and say, you're not speaking specifically enough about the things you said about justice, about racial reconciliation. You know, we're, we're doling out our, our small amounts, but we're not really seeking to change society. And so mm. I think the, bat, the, the, the struggle is on the one side, you know, you've got people in the middle that, like you said, that the abstract is a safe space <laughs> because it leaves some things open to interpretation. And so I've always kind of maybe, maybe justified it wrong or right. I don't know. Um, in the sense that I, I use some of the abstract to try to keep us all on the same plane. But then when we go out and we do work in the world, there is a very tangible, specific element to how we do what we do. And we don't hide the fact that, you know, you're down advocating for rent relief or that mm-hmm. we're, you know, uh, 13% of all the food distribution going out in 18 counties is going from our food pantry or whatever it is. And some people say like, oh, well, you're just pointing to those things that you do. But that's that's the real action. That's the real work that happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I do think it's a big shift happening in society. And I think we are becoming, as I shared with you, a lot more assertive and confident in and mm-hmm. versus where we used to be, where we were very careful to try to negotiate all the sides. And mm-hmm. and now I find myself in pandemic mode and post-secularism and all these things that we find ourselves where it's like when someone comes and they throw down the gauntlet and I'm like, okay, fine, there's a church for you. Maybe this is not it. And mm-hmm. so I think we're making the move to that. I, I just want to be really careful that I'm not overlaying sort of my personal self-interest with transcendent biblical loving merciful reconciliation because i'm with you i mean you you can have i think on some some people are they they fall into a very legalistic way of interpreting their faith and a legalistic way of interpreting things like these people come across the border illegally they don't have any rights blah 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 that way anything goes but i don't care if you even believe that, and even if that's true, the fact that a child would be torn from the mother, and they would say, well, we do it in this country if, if a woman's like, you know, arrested, she doesn't have her child, you know, they make us like, it doesn't matter. It's, it's just, it's wrong in any sense of, of wherever it happens. It, it, if it doesn't break your heart, it kind of makes me wonder if there's a heart in there, mm. I guess, is the fact. Mm. Mm. I don't know. It's yeah, a struggle. It is. And, I, and I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I tell my all my clergy friends, I say, man, you know, I wouldn't want to be you right now. Like, so I, like I said, there's a reason why I think I'm not institutionally as a church as a pastor right now, because these are difficult times, right? Like, especially given not only the, the variety of not only perspectives, but um, 
I think fundamentally the ability to ask questions about um, just what's the what's the merciful way here, meaning, you know, regardless of what one feels about policy or whatever, just fundamentally, how can I maintain the integrity of another human, right? And for me, sometimes, you know, mm. for me, it just boils down to like that, like, how do I maintain the integrity of another human I see, regardless of where they come from or how they got here in front of me right now? That's right. Right. And if we get these base fundamental questions, right? So then we got to ask, like, so what does the life of faith do for us? What is it meant to do for us? And people have different different answers to those questions. And I just think, you know, because myself, I was, you know, I was formed in a conservative black evangelical tradition. And I just found more not as an intellectual type of like growth. I just found that the more and more I just try to deeply become human, the more some of these kind of strict dogmatisms I, I had about faith or about what a person should do in their own lives began to kind of become subverted by a more fundamental concern about how, you know, like the Bible just says, you know, how would I want to be treated if I were this other person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's rough. And I, and I tell and I often that in our consulting practice, we often tell folks, now listen, we're not here to tell you exactly what to do in this instance. You have to, you have to gauge the temperature of where your congregation or your institution is. All we can do is just provide a set of tools about what it means to think about these things, but you have to be recognized. Where's your board willing to go? Where's your constituent ready to go? What really, what loss are you willing to kind of uh, endure? And then also back up and say, well, and just recognize where you are in that. You know, I just think it's incumbent upon us now to recognize who are we in this moment? What stances uh, do I think are foundational for me to be a moral and ethical person who moves about in this world? How can I be in a person of integrity, meaning who I am in front of people is who I am behind closed doors when it's just me and Matt, right? These are just fundamental questions we ask. Like, who am I when I'm with every other audience? Mm-hmm. And if over time one is forced to, uh, I guess, dissemble oneself, right, based on where they are, that's when I think those are moments where you can have the opportunity to grow and say, oh, no, I, I really want to be consistent with the kind of personality who I've tried to form myself to be. I think that's where growth happens. And But spurring these conversations, what I'm seeing now happening in churches especially is folks are like trying to have the conversations, right? I think now the struggle and tension is how do I move from these conversations to kind of being, uh, figuring out what to do and, and am I willing to kind of take that step? Because the truth of the matter is, I think what these moments sometimes require us to do really requires not only a deep disorientation personally, but it's really going to require restructuring. Think about Jesus' life. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. synagogue leaders didn't necessarily love Jesus in his prophetic ministry and what Jesus, because he fundamentally was like, you know, the religious authorities fundamentally was against the movement of Jesus. In fact, it's the reason why Jesus got crucified. And so we have to ask ourselves as institutional leaders, what does that mean for us now in this institution? I don't have the answers. I'm just thinking out loud with you guys. No. That's, That's what right. I'm doing. I'm thinking out loud. Yeah, That's and I, I think through, like, think about that institutions are to serve people, right? They're, they're to be those institutions that create space for that kind of rich dialogue, that rich coming together, and the protection of what its mission is to serve, uh, to serve the broader 
uh, um, kind of human struggle, right? And so when institutions flip and ask folks to serve that for some kind of um, stability that it can't bring, it ends up uh, ripping us apart, I think, you know? Well, I was, I was uh, noted that a rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, died this week. He's, besides Jesus, he's probably one of my favorite rabbis of all time. And uh, he told a story one time, I've, which is, is apocryphal, but um, he, um, where, where Moses is, uh, is coming across and all the children of Israel were let out, right? And, and um, the, the, the sea opens up and uh, the, all the children of Israel run across to the other side. And uh, then the sea closes back up and Moses turns to the children of Israel and they're just dancing and partying and just going crazy. And he turns to Yahweh and Yahweh has his back turns on the children of Israel and is weeping. And Moses says, God, why are you crying? And uh, um, he says, because my children are, are, are drowning in the sea. Right. Hmm. And I think there's so much of what we've done in our country, which is to create an either or that we no longer can, as Ruby Sales says, we no longer can, can be led to each other's pain that's behind all the discourses. And I think part of what we have to do as a church and partly what we have to do as ministers of the faith is to understand the discourses, but to be led to the pain underneath the discourses so that we can really enact what is really, I think, at the heart of all of us is deeper longing to be healed, to be made whole, to be saved. That's the root word of that word anyway. Right. Um, and not to um, not to make it a zero sum game. Yeah. Well, that that opens the door. <clears throat> How much time we got, Jeff? We're at 30 minutes on the dock right now. You want to keep going or you want to. What um, you want to do? I'm good. I, I mean, 30s, 30s always nice. <laughs> <laughs> 30 minutes is always nice. Well, all right, so just from my own uh, knowledge, and for you, Cleve, to weigh in on this, so the United Methodist Church just had a gathering, which usually means not a lot was accomplished, and probably more meetings were scheduled. That's usually what that means. Um, But the bishops put out something, and it was very confusing to me, and maybe because I'm just not very smart, but I was wondering if you might just help me like with, with language here. So the bishops met, and what they, they did a bunch of different things about a bunch of different things that no one really cares about. But they also um, came out with something that they said a, they approved four pillars that they would like to focus on in the church's anti-racism work. All right, so let me read you these four. Let me get your thoughts on this. The number mm. one, creating space for narratives of integrity and truth while resisting narratives of fear and division or othering. I, I, I'm kind of wishing that they'd expanded more on some of these. I don't really know what that means. Creating spaces for narratives of integrity and truth while resisting mm. narratives of fear and division or othering. Is that just honest dialogue? Is that what they mean? Listening to each yeah, other? A long, a long sentence for just saying, let's create spaces where we can have respect for dialogue, basically. Then they said moving toward... We want people to have integrity and to speak in their truth. We also don't want people to like get mad and stoke further division. So all they're saying, look, 
let's create spaces where we can have respectful dialogue, basically. Okay. <laughs> Is that is that also too? Yeah, that that sounds like. Can we just all get along? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, doesn't it? It's just like, hey, you listen to me, I listen to you. You don't stoke fear, I won't stoke fear. I mean, dude, our country is excellent at stoking fear. This is what we do. We get a plus in stoking fear. We export it. This is what we do. And then yeah. the second one was moving toward pain, injury, and harm. And you had to help me with that one because I was thought, why would I want to move toward pain, injury, and harm? But you're saying being drawn to where there is pain, injury, yeah, and harm, yeah. right? I think this is like the the call to move towards the margins, the call of widow, orphan, stranger. Where is that? Because we know that in pain, injury, and harm, there's a deep need for healing, and that's usually the place where the spirit shows up and does a lot of work. Um, you know, calls us to to move into that direction. You know, I think also that it dismantles some of the narrative, this kind of narrative of left to right and up is the narrative to be joined to. And that we see a lot of, um, you know, we see a lot of folks that are beginning to talk about um, kind of alternative history than the one that is taught, (laughs) you know, the one that's kind of brought out and amplified to say, actually, there's a multiple histories of folks that within the United States that have um, suffered and painfully and continue to be a part of that oppression that we need to move towards. And I think our salvation, our wholeness as a nation is caught up in our, um, our ability to do that as people that are privileged and credentialed. So I think that's a rather charitable read. I mean, I'm willing to grant that, but I think you're reading a lot more than what I see, right? Because I mean, I think <laughs> there's only five words right. there. <laughs> I would, I would think, yeah, I would think that's what it means. But as it stated, it just says moving toward pain, injury, and harm. But like John said, there's not much explication about what that means that's true. exactly. Come on, professor, on hand, teach, on the, teach on us the, what is this? Should, what should it say? <laughs> on the one hand, I mean, I think just reading it at face value could mean, hey, let's be more engaged with trauma porn. On the one hand, right. Or it could just say, let's, like what Matt is saying, move into these zones for the purposes of trying to address some of that, right? But but how it's left right now is kind of truncated. We don't know what that means. It could just mean more listening sessions. <laughs> and so I wish, you know, it would have been more explicit in that. Yeah, right? they, need a better, they need, a, yeah. need a better PR person on a press release because yeah. this, and I even went to the press release down below and I clicked on it to get like the fuller thing, and this is just all they had with these four. This porn. is the fullest thing. Yeah, this was got. it. This, so they had it. So you get enough bishops together with all theology yeah. degrees, and this is the best. So thing I, I think you're right. I think there's going to probably be yeah. a commission formed for each one of these four pillars that are oh, going to. Wow. I, I mean, it, that's just the Methodist way of doing you're things. You're right. You're right. And then well, nothing. I mean, I, nothing. Just be just for y'all, you sent it to me earlier. Next one a willingness to be discomforted in order to be faithful <laughs> witnesses and for living as people of relentless hope. But in none of that does it mean I'm addressing ships. I'm sorry for the audience. Boot that out. None of that says I'm addressing ships. Right? It, it just says I'm going to listen I'm gonna be a little uncomfortable, and I'm going back to my church and do my thing. And I'm right? gonna live. I'm gonna live with hope, which means what? Yeah, and, and, we, and we and look, and I'm just gonna hope it all improves better. <laughs> It all gets Jesus better. Is coming to me. Hey, so but, hey but like we talked about before, we love these. Uh, I love these abstract words. Let's relentless hope. 
Relentless hope. I can preach that. Relentless hope. And they get a tear in my eye. We're going to get up, walk out with relentless hope. It doesn't cost us anything. But exactly. I don't have to do anything with this, though, right? I really don't have to do anything with this. I just got to have a couple of what they might call courageous conversations for a while (laughs) until this moment passes. And then we go back to the status quo, right? So I'm interested to see what comes out of That's really interesting. Even like number three, this willingness to be discomforted in order to be a faithful witness. As if your ability to... Yeah. Your willingness to be discomforted. A faithful witness to my discourse, though, right? Yes, right. To who? (laughs) I'm going to listen, not to really hear you. I'm going to listen so I can be a better witness so you can get transformed and see where I am. But also, it also Mm. means if I just feel discomforted, I've been a faithful witness. It doesn't mean I have to change. It doesn't mean I have to do anything about that. You know what? If if that's the case, then your friendship has made me the most faithful witness on the planet. (laughs) You should be, yeah. You are the most faithful witness in the world. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, I have, I am relentlessly hopeful that maybe they'll add more to this. My fourth pillar. I'm going to stand on the fourth pillar, and maybe they'll. I mean, if look, I've, I've been a Methodist pastor now for. 30 years, and I can tell you that probably what's going to happen is they'll have commissions, and they'll appoint people, and they'll they'll wow. do documents, and they'll bring it to things. There'll be all these words on a page, and they might even come out with a study guide. Yes. Wow. There may be a yeah. study guide. And and probably nowadays, since we're in the 21st century, yeah. it could be a, a video, a DVD, although it probably now will have an option to download it online. Wow. So we could get that. We could get that. Yeah, and then it, and then a couple of churches will buy it. They might use it, and then it'll end up in the church library, which will be the eternal record of all of these things we've studied. Yes, which know. is so interesting, and that's why when when you know folks say they don't come to church because the church is answering questions that nobody's asking. When the whole culture is being torn up, we can't even be definitive with our language in terms. Of, this is about anti-racism. Mm. Right. Mm. And this is where I get a little frustrated saying, you know, um, we have basically the founder of our faith is a person of color. We can do better than this, folks. Well, I, you know, it was interesting because when I when I just read that, I read the press release about some other things and I read this. I thought, oh, they're going to make as a central part of their whole focus anti-racism. And then I read these four pillars and I know, you know, I'm learning a lot from you guys and the work that you're doing and curate and in the community. I'm just trying to, I'm really trying to listen and learn. But I mean, I, I certainly am not anywhere close to knowing as much as I should know about this. But I read this and I just, I, I didn't even know what this stuff meant. You know what I'm yeah. saying? I, I just. I mean, it start, me and, when I first met, when me and Matt first started, I told him in the beginning, probably what's going to be most disorienting mad and if nothing else i think you know the whole reason why i you know started engaging in any kind of critical studies like unless you're willing to stay, do what i said started in the beginning unless we're able to really critically look at how our discourse plays into the further oppression of folk who our systems kind of uh suppress and that's it so the first thing we started doing man was challenging i mean same thing just even at the image of jesus right Mm-hmm. I mean, Matt remembers the first thing we began to do is break down these terms, like, right? you know, what do we mean when we say 
reconciliation. What do we mean when we say justice, right? Yes. It's one thing to say terms, but honestly, we use words so sloppily nowadays. We don't really know what we mean when we say them, right? Yes. So I, I think sometimes if we can just take a, more time in our sermons, even being more thoughtful about how we use words and don't, and let's not presume, right? We have the same kind of understandings of these terms because oftentimes we do. And what I've just learned is we just back up and say, well, what do you mean by that, right? Mm. Um, what do we mean when we say this, when we say the kingdom, right? The kingdom, kingdom, right? What do we mean about neighbor, right? Just these basic terms we use, we don't ask ourselves enough questions. And I don't think we really interrogate uh, both biblical narrative and text along with tradition and the social cultural history of what was going on. We miss a lot of these larger lessons, right? We got to do right. more investigation of these texts about why did Jesus call the woman a dog and Samaritan by pointing to their people? And what implications does that have for today and for us, right? right? So like there are so many questions we can ask even of just the text that we read on Sundays, hmm. different perspectives we can bring about that I think can in themselves make us uh, better followers of, of Jesus's way, which was about love, mercy, and justice as far as I understand it. For me, from my perspective now, uh, if there's any kind of dogmatism or idea or creed that causes me um, to devalue someone else, right? That's something I got to scrutinize further and see if it's worth me holding on to. Right? Yeah. Amen. It it reminds me. Last thing. Last thing. I think we can say when we end here. But I can't remember who. If it was Fred Craddock, one of my professors, and he used to say, you know, when you preach a sermon, you know, at the end of at the end of the sermon, when you walk away, the question that the preacher should ask: What difference did this make? Hmm. You know, what difference does it make that I know this? What difference does it make that I preach this sermon? And I think that what you're talking about is um, the work that we have to do to move from sort of theory to practice or belief to practice, you know, the orthodoxy to the orthopraxy. Mm -hmm. And so what does it look like? And it's very easy. It's it's easy to stay in orthodoxy. And it's why we have so many people that are focused on that, you know, right thinking. You don't need people. Because you don't have to live that. You don't have to live right thinking. You don't have to be in relationships right with people with right thinking. So, man, listen, we are praying for you up there. And you look like you're doing great. I like your apartment. And I appreciate your prayers, man. Continue to pray for me. I mean, I don't give a, on the one hand, things are great. But always, there's a struggle to find mm-hmm. the balance. And so I'm saying at the beginning of everything, you want to make sure that, like, yeah, is, am I at the place where... The movement of the spirit continues to, to do things. And so it takes usually a year or two to do that kind of yeah, stuff. And yeah. I'm just at the point in my life now, I tell Matt this all the time, I've been involved on the bottom floor of so many movements, I'm tired of starting from scratch, right? So I need <laughs> God to work it a little faster. Make my adjustment period in about three months, okay? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so that'll be, that. that'll be our prayer that you go from like the you know, like month one to year one yeah. as quickly yes. as possible. Month one to, to, to year 10 yeah. in three months. Yeah. I need to do, yeah. Man, we love you. I'm looking forward to seeing you when you get back in town. Yeah, miss you guys too, man. Look forward love to seeing you, you guys too. All right. We'll be getting together. Thanks, That'll be great. Right, See you. Thanks. Bye. You know, it's always great talking with Cleve because his, his perspective seems to kind of pull at the edges of my own understanding and, and, and broaden me, you know, mm-hmm. 
um, I had the tendency to kind of uh, focus too tightly on some things. And he, like any good prophet, pulls those edges apart. And I go, okay, that's uh, that's what it means to live more f- fully human in this life. So. I just think he has a real gift that if you're willing to listen, no matter where you are, especially I think in my context as, as a white man, and I'm thinking about all mm-hmm. the racial re- recalibration and, and, and yeah. struggles in society, I want to understand, I want to listen, but sometimes... I, I hear voices and things that that strike me in a way that makes me v- very angry or defensive. Yeah, yeah, you're right, right. But he's got this invitational way that invites me into space, and I don't I don't feel threatened by him, but I feel challenged. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. I felt, and like I think that. that's a great gift that he has. It is, and I think that um, that it's incumbent upon all of us to to listen to each other. Yeah. And I think he also listens with what I appreciate about him. He does. I love that. What he was talking about that, the cultivation of that space where we can really have a different kind of dialogue. We all say we want that, but cultivating that space to where it's not, if I agree with you, I'll stay. If I don't, I'm going to go, mm-hmm. but it's saying, no, you're my brother. You're my sister. This is what it means to work out our faith with fear and trembling, you know, and we have to continue to cultivate that. Good podcast. Mm -hmm. I'm John Stevens. And I'm Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy.